this week on the Back Table Podcast. Now, this is a little trick that, that really helped me get between ribs because it always seems that that nodule that looks so ripe and juicy for the picking on the diagnostic scan, when you put the patient into the scanner in the position you want to do your biopsy, somehow that is always directly behind a rib. And so the way I think about it is that you need to tilt the gantry either toward you to come from the patient's top or away from you to come toward the patient's bottom. So the way I decide which way to tilt the gantry is that I scan through the nodule, I scroll from the top to the bottom, and I say to myself, is the nodule closer to the top of the rib or the bottom of the rib? If it's closer to the top of the rib, then I will tilt the gantry toward the patient's head. So I'm coming from the top down. I, I hope that makes sense. It's No, no, it that's does, how yes. I, yeah, that's how I choose my obliquity. And it's just really simple. You just scroll through and decide if the nodule is closer to the top or the bottom and then tilt the gantry that direction. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things endovascular and minimally invasive. If you are a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, which is backtable.com. Very easy to remember. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on social media. You guys got to let us know how we can make this podcast a better resource for our community, and we're going to do our best to make that happen. Before we dive into our topic today, just want to say a quick word from our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad radiation protection products developed by physicians for physicians and clinically proven to protect during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your health on anything less. Trust RadPad protection for all your interventions. See RadPad.com for more information and contact info at RadPad.com to learn more about radiation safety CME credits for you and your team. Today, we're going to be discussing percutaneous lung biopsies uh, with blood patching. Today, to help us with that discussion, we have Dr. Fred Lee. Dr. Lee is Chief of Abdominal Intervention at the University of Wisconsin. Dr. Lee recently helped publish a paper on this topic in JVIR. I think it was the September edition. For our audience, if you'd like to follow along, feel free to hit the pause button and check out this paper, or just feel free to soldier on and then catch the paper on the back end. Fred, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Chris. It's wonderful to be here. If you would, um, would you just uh, go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience and talk a little bit about uh, your background and what your current practice looks like? Sure. So I'm a radiologist at the University of Wisconsin, and I'm a professor of radiology, biomedical engineering, and urology. And my practice is approximately 50% diagnostic and 50% intervention with a focus on percutaneous interventions in the chest and in the abdomen. I do a lot of biopsy work, and uh, I also do a lot of tumor ablation, both in the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. Uh, so that's primarily my, my clinical practice. Uh, my research interests are primarily focused around ablation uh, and, and some other percutaneous interventions um, throughout the chest, abdomen, and pelvis as well. Yeah, like lung biopsies, right? Exactly. <laughs> All right. So one thing that I want to talk about before we actually get into the paper, although it is within the paper, but I just want to talk about your technique of the lung biopsy. And um, I'll just kind of let you take it as an open-ended question and kind of describe it. But there are a couple of things I do want to drill down on. Sure. So uh, we've been doing lung biopsies at the University of Wisconsin for 
as long as I've been here, which is about 30 years. And one of the things that we thought about in great detail is that uh, lung biopsies can be both very dangerous and also very important for, for the patient. And so we feel like it's important to get this, this right. Lung biopsy is not something that you want to dabble in. You want to do it really well. And so along those lines, uh, we thought about every aspect of the procedure from what patients were going to do to how to manage complications and tried to drill down and understand how to do it better in each of those little sub areas. So in our practice, we do a lot of lung biopsies. Uh, we have a dedicated lung biopsy nurse named Marsha Foltz, who's really fantastic. And uh, we have a intake service, uh, which is primarily Marsha with some other help. And our referring doctors will directly call Marsha uh, with many cases. Otherwise they run into us in the hallway or they message us through the electronic medical record system as, as kind of the broad intake. And then what happens is like many of your practices, I'm sure the patients get screened by one of the radiologists that do lung biopsies. And if they're appropriate, they're, they're then put on the schedule. So I'm sure that's very similar to virtually everybody's practice. I think one of the differences though, is that Marsha is dedicated to CT guided procedures. That's all she does. And lung biopsies make up a very large percentage of, of her practice probably about 50% of her practice. So at uh, Wisconsin, we will do lung biopsies two to three days a week with a few other patients scattered in on the off days, so to speak. I'd say that our average is around 10 to 15 lung biopsies per week, sometimes less, sometimes more, but, but something around that range. And so we're very busy. We have about seven or eight physicians that perform them. And all of us do a high volume of these procedures. So we're very used to doing it. Uh, we have very similar technique and standards. And we try to standardize anything that we do uh, when we do lung biopsies. So everything from how we do local anesthesia to how we do, how we obtain specimens, we try to standardize this as best we can. There are some minor differences as there are in every practice, but but we really do have an eye on standardization because if you don't standardize what you do, it's hard to improve in a systematic way. And so that's, that's kind of how, how we do it. Well, one, I just wanted to like take a beat and recognize that how fantastic to have someone, uh, it sounds like Marsha dedicated RN to all your CT guided procedures. Um, I think that kind of speaks to the volume of what you guys are doing. Go ahead and talk about uh, what I think you're about to launch into is the actual like technique of the procedure and um, like as far as actually just I'll leave it open ended how the, the technique of the procedure. Sure. So before I get into that, I, I do want to reiterate exactly what you said that having a dedicated nursing resource is really important. Marsha knows all the indications for the procedure. She knows all the referring physicians. She attends every procedure as well. And so if something is going haywire, she's a really good canary in the coal mine and can warn physicians that something's going wrong or something along those lines. So um, a very, very valuable resource. In terms of the procedure itself, so I'm a firm believer in trying to do things the same way, if at all possible, every single time you do it. I, I liken a little bit to uh, what my buddy Lewis Hinshaw always says about his golf swing is that if you can if you can get it exactly the same every time, then your chances of success go way up. So 
I try to do this uh, in a similar fashion at all possible. And one of the things that I do is that I will turn the patients uh, so that I'm delivering the needle from the top to the bottom rather than putting a needle from the side, if at all possible. Now, it's not always possible for various reasons, but if I have my druthers, I try to put the needle in from the top down. So I think that's one, that's one thing that, uh, that, that I personally try to standardize. The other uh, thing that I think we don't think about enough sometimes as interventionalists is local anesthesia. And I spend a lot of time making sure that we have adequate and excellent local anesthesia. And uh, how I particularly do it is I use lidocaine with epinephrine and we buffer it with a little bit of bicarb. And the reason that I use lido with epi is multifold. One is that, of course, it lasts longer. And, uh, and so patients tend to have less pain in the recovery area and maybe are a little less distressed if, uh, if they were going to have some pain. So that's number one. Number two is that lidocaine with epi is a vaso, it causes vasospasm. And especially when I'm going uh, between ribs, I want to inject the lidocaine with epi ahead of myself and try to spasm the intercostal vessels down so I'm less likely to hit them. Now, I don't have great data that this decreases the incidence of damaging the intercostal artery or vein, but I think it probably does. Um, I, as I said, I haven't done a controlled study on this, but I think it probably uh, it probably does a good job in that. The last point I want to make with local anesthesia is that, uh, and if you read the paper, you'll see how we do this, is that I tend to do a two-needle technique. Some people will put the guide needle right down to the pleural surface and inject lidocaine through the guide needle. I don't like to do that as much. Um, I personally believe that if you take a second needle, I usually use a spinal needle in a large patient or an inch and a half needle in a smaller patient. I put an extension tubing on it. And so I have a closed system. And with CT fluoro, I rapidly put it down into the inner space, just a millimeter or two short of the pleura and inject a fairly high volume, five or six cc's of lidocaine with epinephrine right on the pleura to cause this concavity. And uh, in the, the pleura, as it's pushing into the lung. And in that way, I'm certain that I have excellent anesthesia and the patient's not going to feel it when I pop the needle through the pleura and into the lung. So that's, the, that's how I, I go ahead and do local anesthesia. I just wanted to uh, take a second and recognize that I know exactly what you're talking about in that when you're administering the anesthesia, you get that like lenticular fluid uh, interface between the pleura and uh, like the chest wall cavity or not the chest wall cavity, but the pleura and the lung surface. Exactly. Um, and so, and so you're talking about getting the, maybe the a 25 or a 22 gauge spinal needle down, or maybe the, the short needles that come in the biopsy sets. Yes. Administering five to six mLs of 1% lidocaine with epi, right? I just wanted a quick summary. Yes, that's exactly right. And if you do it and you, uh, if you do it and you're very close to the pleural surface and you inject enough lidocaine, you have that lenticular shape of the pleura. And what that tells me is that I have adequate anesthesia in the intercostal space. What I'm trying to avoid is the patient feeling pain when you place the needle through the pleura into the lung and taking a sudden deep breath. Because if they do that, I worry about lacerating the surface of the lung. And of course, then you're going down a pneumothorax pathway, sure. et cetera. Sure. 
Okay. And then, so once you have the lidocaine down and it's time for, before you get into like the actual technique of it, can you talk about the needle selection size and, and why you guys choose that needle? Yeah. So if you look in the literature, there's, there are papers that do lung biopsies with needles of various sizes, even up to 14 gauge, which seems very extreme to me. Um, in our practice, we uniformly use a 19 gauge introducer with a 20 gauge core biopsy. Uh, however, the data is pretty good for even a 17, 18 set um, in terms of pneumothoraces and, and other complications. The cut point is probably in the 17, 18 gauge range with larger needle sizes having higher complication rates and smaller needle sizes probably having a similar complication rate to that 17, 18 gauge size. So I think anything larger than that is probably not advisable. We tend to go smaller and, and we have very good results uh, with smaller needles. The biopsy size is important and is becoming more important in the era of personalized medicine where we're not just uh, necessarily getting a biopsy for histopathology anymore. There's genetic testing and all kinds of other things that are required by our specimens. And this requires larger numbers or larger sizes of specimens, which is a, a different topic altogether, but something to keep in mind uh, when you're doing, doing biopsies. Sometimes a, a close relationship with your pathologist and your referring docs on not just understanding that you're doing a biopsy, but understand the point of the biopsy and then what you're trying to accomplish from it can help kind of sort out those things uh, on the back end. I know that in our practice, we started putting our uh, biopsy samples in two different formalin containers. And for whatever reason, that was helping our pathologist sort through and save a little extra tissue for molecular genetic testing. But sorry, go ahead, Fred, keep going. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and that's one of the roles that Marsha plays in our practice is uh, she screens all the patients and, and contacts all the referring physicians for exactly what they're going to be testing for and where the specimens go. There's nothing worse than than throwing specimens in formalin and then realizing you needed fresh tissue oh, or yes. vice versa. Uh -huh. <laughs> so right. That, that's a really bad mistake to make. So having someone screening for that on the front end is is really important in my opinion. For sure. And then also one of the things I noticed about the paper, do you guys have pathology in the room or a cytotechnology in the room for assessment of either adequacy or whether or not you're in a non-necrotic part of the tumor? So back before maybe 2014 or 2015, we did a large number of fine needle aspiration biopsies. Essentially, we just don't do that anymore in the chest, primarily because of this molecular testing and things that's needed and, uh, and specimen adequacy. And so when we changed our practice, at the, at the time when we were doing FNAs, we did have a cytotech in the room. Once we changed our practice over to core biopsies, we no longer uh, had a, a technologist uh, or a pathologist in the room. I know that some practices are doing a touch prep or some rapid testing of core specimens. I mean, that could be helpful. There's some data that that decreases the overall diagnostic rate of the final specimen. I'm not sure how true that is, but there are some papers that have mentioned that as a possibility. So we just tend to put the cores right in formalin with no monkeying around and, um, you know, try to get the maximum amount of tissue that we can uh, from, from the, the biopsy specimen. One of our major limitations is that, as you can see from the paper, 
we go after really small nodules. A very large proportion of our nodules, maybe 20, 25% of our nodules are uh, one centimeter or smaller in size. In fact, last week I did a five millimeter nodule. So this is becoming increasingly frequent and your ability to get great specimens from those really small nodules uh, can be really tough. And in our practice, like I think virtually every practice, your diagnostic rate drops somewhat as the nodules get smaller. Even though our rate is lower, it's still pretty good. Um, in, in this paper, as you can see when you read it, the diagnostic yield is somewhere around 87% for nodules that are a centimeter or smaller. And so you can still do a really good job with small nodules if you have really excellent technique, but you should expect your diagnostic yield to drop slightly as the nodules get smaller. So actually, I, I had a little bit of pushback from some of my referring docs about, so my practice uh, mirrors yours in, in many ways, including not having uh, pathology in the room for like a touch prep uh, review for adequacy or, but at least my explanation was that, you know, if you're talking about a five millimeter need, a really anything under 10 millimeters, I mean, where are you going to put the needle? I mean, like, presumably you've put it in the optimal spot and there's not a lot of wiggle room in terms of like making it any better when you, you're down to lesions that small. And so I told them it didn't create a situation where I'd be able to change the procedure in a way that was meaningful to like increase my diagnostic yield. We've actually also moved away from using cytopathology um, and just have moved to all core biopsies of basically all pulmonary nodules and masses. Yeah, I think more and more practices are doing it even from an efficiency standpoint, um, mm -hmm. it's a it's a big advantage. But I have to say that there have been some attempts in the technology world to give some immediate feedback to you that you actually did hit the nodule. And, and that would be wonderful if that is the case. It would be nice if we could do it in a way that is very fast, doesn't kind of steal tissue from our final diagnosis, so to speak, and is uh, something that we can do in the room. But that, even though there have been some attempts at that, uh, nothing has really bubbled to the top at this point. So you inventors out there, get, get working. We, we need something like that. So one of the things I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about is just questions in general about, I mean, you guys clearly do a high volume. I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't just like pick your brain a little bit on some of the optimization methods for doing lung biopsies. And I just have a series of, you know, you can either make them quick fire, throw away questions, but... One of the questions that was kind of mentioned in the paper, or maybe tangentially, was CT fluoro, CT fluoro versus CT just regular. Um, I, I don't know, standard CT guidance. I think that I know what fluoro CT is. and But now I feel like the line is a little bit blurred in that there are some places that I've been where I can't say that I have a pedal next to the CT scanner, but they certainly have software where the patient goes in, it does a quick three slice series that maybe covers like a centimeter or two centimeters of the lung. And that feels kind of in the vein of CT fluoro, but may not qualify as CT fluoro. But can you talk a little bit about how CT fluoro and just standard CT changes or doesn't change your practice much? Sure. This is a complicated topic. And I think we have to also throw in CT navigation using kind of historical data sets too, because that's another method that looks like it's, it's, it's uh, becoming increasingly adopted. So conventional CT intervention uh, was started back in the mid-1970s by, by John Haga. It hasn't really changed all that much. That's the method where, you know, we'll place a needle, walk out of the room, do a small diagnostic scan, generally with a short Z-axis, figure out where our needle is, walk back into the room, make corrections, 
and walk back out of the room, etc. Mm -hmm. This can be very laborious. For a small lung nodule, this can take a tremendous amount of time. Um, as you noted, the lung is moving. And even though we're, we're pretty careful to get all of our scans in end expiration, which I would urge people to do because it's the most reproducible phase of, of respiration and the, it's also the longest. Even with that, uh, the nodule can be all over the place and you can find yourself chasing a small nodule all day, if, uh, depending on how much patience you have. Um, and so that has not changed since the mid-1970s. And the primary reason that people state for using that is that the, the, they get no radiation exposure, no personal radiation exposure to the physician. And so that, that has some validity. I, I, I can't criticize that. Sure. In our practice, we've taken the opposite tact. And uh, we've done two things. First is that we have really embraced CT fluoroscopy as a semi-real-time technique. So there are two methods of CT fluoroscopy. One of them is real-time CT fluoro, which is similar to conventional fluoro, but with CT. And there are extremes of this where people will put their hand in the x-ray beam and push the needle into the nodule while holding down the pedal. And that is true real-time or, or near real-time uh, technique. That uh, can cause some extreme radiation exposures to the patient and the physician, depending on how long you stand on the pedal. And we have some trainees with really heavy feet. And, uh, and so I think radiation exposure can be, can be very high if you do that. Then there's the second technique, which is a hybrid technique, which is some people call intermittent fluoro, we'll call tap mode. There's other, other names for it in which, um, just as you described, every time you step on the pedal, you get a limited series of images that are projected very quickly onto the screen. And, uh, for our particular system, which is a GE system, we have three images, top, middle, bottom. You can vary the slice thickness depending on the, on the situation, the size, the nodule you're going after, et cetera. And we will limit the stepping on the pedal until the patient is in expiration. And again, I have to give kudos to my nurse, Marsha, who's really good at looking at the patient and even those irregular breathers and patients that belly breathe and things, she can figure out when the patient's in end expiration, she signals to me to tap on the pedal. So that's great. Uh, really, really, I, I mean, she's, uh, you know, having her in every procedure is, is just, I mean, it makes things so much easier. So we will tend to use the tap fluoro and that will really limit the radiation exposure to, to you and the patient. And, and I would urge you to do that. There's kind of another hybrid version of that, that is even less radiation and is a little less cumbersome than walking in and out of the room. And that is to do the tap fluoro technique, but take one step behind a screen when you do it. It's not as fast as being right at the patient's bedside, but if fluoro radiation is worrying to you, then that is a way of getting zero radiation. You can also stand lateral to the CT scanner where there's excellent shielding and get no radiation as well. So those are two ways if, if the radiation concerns you, um, which I think, you know, CT radiation is very misunderstood. And um, for those people that are willing to do a taste procedure, for example, which is maybe a thousand times more radiation than a lung biopsy, you know, no radiation is, is the best, of course, but I think it's important to put it into context versus other procedures that interventional radiologists do. And lung biopsies with really good technique, with low MA, most of the time you only need 10 MA, 
um, at 140 kV, uh, you'll you'll get more bang for your buck in terms of image quality at 140 kV. And at low MA, your radiation exposure is very low, and you can make it zero with slight modifications using shielding or stepping to the side of the CT scanner. Well, I'm glad to ask that because one of the things that comes to mind whenever I'm talking about CT fluoro is that heavy footed approach where someone steps on the pedal, reaches their hand into the gantry and, and adjusts the needle. That's what I always picture. But I, th I think it's good to point out that, you know, you can have the pedal, you can bring the pedal off to the side of the CT. I've seen people do it with a screen. All those things can really minimize the, which I think is the main argument against CT fluoro versus, uh, you know, conventional CT where you walk out of the room is the, the radiation exposure. Exactly. Um, and you, you also talked about another thing that I wanted to bring, bring up. And I was going to bring it up in the context of moderate sedation versus local. Um, it sounds like you guys do moderate sedation for everything, but making it a point to do your biopsies on end expiration, I think is, I, I think that's a good practice to get into. I, I think sometimes there's, there's room for variation where if you happen to, sometimes lesions can pop into a better area if you happen to, to use a different breath hole, but I think end expiration tends to create the most reproducible location of the lesion. Absolutely. And you can use respiration to your advantage. As you were saying, if you need to pull the nodule down to you a little bit, just have them take a very small breath and hold it. My issue is that when we start giving a little sedation to patients, it's very hard to get a reproducible breath hold. And also it's, it is getting back to the balloon analogy again, puncturing a patient during inspiration is kind of like filling a balloon and then sticking a needle into it. And I, I would rather have a deflated balloon and stick a needle into it with less pressure in the, in the lung. Um, I think it probably uh, decreases your pneumothorax rate as well. But again, something we haven't, we haven't proven, but, but, but we suspect. One of the other things that I wanted to bring up was the trajectory at which you pick to biopsy a lesion. One of the most challenging lesions for me personally, and I, I've seen it kind of bugger up to my other partners, are those lesions that it's towards the lung base. You have a small lesion that kind of contacts the pleura, but I wouldn't say is pleura, pleural based. And I feel like some, for whatever reason, it's those pleural based nodules. Some, sometimes even the short, it's a shorter distance to get to, but there's something about those lesions that can be a little bit more difficult. And I, I didn't know if you had any specific, I, I haven't, my own opinion, but I was wondering if you had any specific advice on that in particular and, and why maybe they, they tend to give us a little bit of grief. Oh, Chris, I'm so glad you brought that up because those are the ones we all hate to see, the lower lobe nodules, which mm -hmm. tend to move more, and, and the ones that are on the pleural surface. The tendency is to directly puncture uh, those, which I think is a mistake. I personally, because what happens is that you, even if you're successful puncturing it, it's, it's a little bit like you have a, like a marble, for example, something hard on the surface of a soft, you know, of, of a soft background lung. And so I, I think it's, it's a little bit hard to actually puncture the nodule, number one. And number two, your tip of your needle is right at the pleural space. And when you pull your stylet out, oftentimes air rushes in and you end up with a pneumothorax. And then of course you start going down that whole slippery slope. So generally for smaller nodules at the lower lobe on the surface, I personally tend to take a slightly longer path and I'll puncture through some parenchyma to try to stabilize the needle and get me a little away from the, the pleural surface when I, when I do my biopsies. Because what you don't want is when you're doing exchanges of the stylet for the biopsy needle, is every time you pull the stylet out, you're gonna introduce air and it just 
it can progressively drop the lung if you tip your needles in the pleural space. And so I like to be in the lung parenchyma if at all possible. But I know exactly what you're talking about. We all groan when, uh, in fact, we, we all accuse Marsha of putting those patients on our day. <laughs> and, uh, and somehow I personally think that I'm being targeted by, uh, by, by those, by having sure, those nodules your, your on my day. Your excellence is being targeted. Marsha thinks that you, you... <laughs> but all my partners feel the same way. So I, I, for some reason, I think it probably, uh, probably evens out, but I, I like to go through parenchyma for those. And in general, for biopsies, you want the shortest path, but that's the one exception that I'll make is lower lobe, small surface nodules. Those things can be really painful. Those are not, not fun. I agree. I, and it, for the same reasons that you say that, um, I sometimes think that a, that whenever you just, tr you just don't have a whole lot of needle purchase within the lesion, even if you manage to just nail it, you know, for a small lesion, it, you're, you just have such tenuous access and, and then you're trying to biopsy. And, and, you know, that part when you're actually taking the biopsy, it's, it's a little bit of blind leap of faith that the needle stays in position. If you use certain types of needles, you may actually be just bi biopsying the pleural surface, which I think sets you up for a pneumothorax. And so I agree. I, I think the technique of anchoring your needle with a little bit of a longer throw in that situation, it, it makes sense. There's one other technical point I want to make because this is a little trick that I think can be really helpful. Most of you out there, I would guess, have CT scanners that can tilt the gantry. And uh, we have our system, we can tilt up to 20 degrees. And we're fortunate at UWs that we have a big bore CT scanner. And when you have a large patient in, uh, in a small bore CT, you can find yourself working in very tight quarters. And mm -hmm. you're concerned about contaminating needles and hitting the, the stylet on a, you know, on the, on the CT, et cetera. And this is exacerbated when you tilt the gantry, it decreases the amount of working space that you have. And so for those of you that are purchasing CT scanners, you should really think about a big bore CT. Uh, we have an 80 centimeter bore CT. And even though it's only 10 centimeters more than the typical diagnostic scanner, which is generally 70 CM, it makes a huge amount of difference because the patients tend to kind of spread out and you get disproportionately more room at the top where you're, where, where you're, you, you generally tend to do most of your work. So tilting the gantry. Now, this is a little trick that, that really helped me get between ribs because it always seems that that nodule that looks so ripe and juicy for the picking on the diagnostic scan, when you put the patient into the scanner in the position you want to do your biopsy, somehow that is always directly behind a rib. And, uh, that's just, that just seems to be the, the luck of the draw more often than not. And so the way I think about it is that you need to tilt the gantry either toward you to come from the patient's top or away from you to come toward the patient's bottom. So more feet up. And uh, the way I decide which way to tilt the gantry is that I scan through the nodule. And so I scroll through the, I scroll from the top to the bottom. And I say to myself, is the nodule end to end expiration, is it closer to the top of the rib or the bottom of the rib? If it's closer to the top of the rib, then I will tilt the gantry toward the patient's head. So I'm coming from the top down. I, I hope that makes sense. It's no, no, it that's does. How I, yes. Yeah. That's how I choose my obliquity. And it's just really simple. You just scroll through and decide if the nodule is closer to the top or the bottom and then tilt the gantry that direction. I usually start with 10 degrees. And that almost always opens up the, the rib space. 
If that doesn't work, then try 15 or 20 degrees. And I guarantee that that, that will take care of almost all of the, those nodules that are hiding behind ribs. I prefer to tilt the gantry than trying to deal with it via respiration, because as we noticed before, or as we discussed before, I find that the, uh, once you give a little bit of, of conscious sedation, the trying to get the patient to take a reproducible breath, it just goes out the window and, and it becomes sure. really difficult. And then you find yourself chasing a nodule, which is never a great situation. Is there ever any concern um, when, you're, when you kick the undersurface of the rib or even nodules that are just behind a rib, but there's a little bit poking out underneath the rib? Is there any concern that when you're really hugging the bottom of the rib for an intercostal bleed? Or for, for me, I, I'll just say that I know that's it's a calculated risk. I know it can happen. And I know it's a higher risk when I'm really hugging the undersurface of the rib. But, you know, sometimes when you're talking about very small lesions, I, I just feel like sometimes we don't have a lot of options that are open to us when, you know, you're trying to angle the gantry to give yourself a little bit more wiggle room or you're trying to mess around with breath hold techniques, which can, you know, arguably cause you can end up in its own uh, rabbit hole of its own. Yeah, this is one of those things that, uh, that every time you put a needle under a rib, you say a little prayer that there's not a, an intercostal artery there, or in particular, an aberrant intercostal artery mm -hmm. that you're going to lacerate. And every time I get away with it, I'm shocked. Knock on wood, I think the rate of damage to the intercostal arteries is surprisingly low in the literature considering how aggressive we've become with our patient selection. And I mean, think about it. How often do you turn down a procedure because, geez, I might have to go under the rib, so I shouldn't be doing that. I mean, that's, I, I think radiologists are, are getting really good at this procedure and are taking on all kinds of cases in patients with nodules pretty much anywhere in the lung. And we get away with it. And I think a lot of it's luck. And when you hit an intercostal artery, I don't think you should generally blame yourself because for every time you come under a rib and hit an intercostal artery, there may be 200 times where you didn't. And so I, I think it's just hitting an intercostal artery is just bad luck in my opinion, more than it is technique. And as you know, in elderly patients, as you start getting out more lateral away from the, uh, the posterior part of the, of the thorax, the position of the intercostal artery becomes more uh, unpredictable. And as people get fatter and uh, more elderly, there are plenty of intercostal arteries that are running right down the middle of interspaces. And so I shake my head and, and, you know, kind of admire all those that are getting away with it. And I feel bad for myself and for others that, that hit them on occasion. And I'm just not sure that that we have a great way of seeing it every single time and avoiding it every single time. And, and uh, generally the information that we get from a lung biopsy is so important to the patient's journey going forward that we have to accept those small rates of complications that, that we're going to get. Yep. I, I totally agree. My next question is kind of regarding the post-biopsy follow-up. So you have an uncomplicated patient, no pneumothorax after the biopsy and um, patient's feeling well. How long do you keep those patients and what's the imaging after the biopsy? So I'll answer that first by explaining our practice and then maybe touching on what's happening around the country and around the world, because I think this is something that's changing a little bit. In our practice, we will, um, in an uncomplicated lung biopsy, we will send the patient to recovery 
for one hour with the biopsy side down. And assuming that everything is fine with the patient, we will get a chest x-ray in one hour post-procedure. If that chest x-ray shows expected findings, and, and what I mean by that is, is, as you allude to, sometimes there'll be a small post-procedure pneumothorax that we are fine with. It's not something that we're going to bother intervening in. And as long as the chest x-ray is concordant with that, so you, you don't see a, a very large pneumothorax or, or the patient's not symptomatic, then we'll hold the patient for another one to two hours and discharge them. So a total of two to three hours and one chest x-ray is, is our routine. Now, for me, and I think my partners, it's, it's very, fairly similar. If patients are in the intermediate situation where they have a pneumothorax, it's maybe just a little bit bigger than you might expect, or there's something about the patient that's bothering you a little bit, then what we'll do is get a, another chest x-ray an hour after the first chest x-ray and very carefully compare those. Mm -hmm. And we're fortunate in that our thoracic reading room is right around the corner and our thoracic radiologist, uh, Chris Meyer, is on this paper and is, uh, is one of them is fantastic. In fact, Chris is the one that taught me about the blood patch. When he was at Indiana, they were using that, uh, the Prankmal blood patch as well. Nice. And we'll go, we'll go talk to, to Chris or, or um, Jeff Keeney or, or one of our great thoracic uh, radiologists, and they will very carefully compare the chest x-rays. Because I have a, a rule that I will not discharge a symptomatic patient or a patient that has a changing chest x-ray. And I want to see a stable chest x-ray at least one hour apart before they'll hit the door if they, if they have a, an x-ray finding. And so um, there can be up to three chest x-rays post-procedure if you're monitoring a known kind of pneumothorax or complication and you want to be sure that it's stable. But after about two or three chest x-rays, I'm thinking to myself, maybe I should throw them back on the scanner and do a, do a, hmm, a plural yeah. blood patch. I mean, I don't want to fool Put around with this forever. Yeah, exactly. Sure. And, and uh, some of my partners are more willing than others to, to follow kind of intermediate size pneumothoraces. I tend to be a little bit more on the side that I just don't like to look at it. And, uh, and so I <laughs> tend to aspirate it and put a blood patch in if it's, if it's starting to bother me. Okay, that's fair. So for the routine patients who are doing well, it's uh, one hour in recovery, biopsy side down, chest x-ray at the one hour mark, and then an additional one to two hours of recovery, then out the door. Right. And that's our practice. Um, I just want to be sure that people know that this is not dogma necessarily. Sure. Um, and that there are people that are investigating um, even no chest x-ray after a routine uncomplicated lung biopsy that showed no pneumothorax after the procedure on the scanner. Um, some people are shortening the, the uh, follow-up time. I think we're kind of in the middle of the extremes that are practiced around the country. And, uh, but, but I think everybody needs to hang on because I think this is an evolving topic. I agree. Um, right now, and in, in just for lack of having a, a better answer to it, our practice is, um, a post-biopsy x-ray at one hour, and then no matter what that shows, we'll still keep them uh, for a post-biopsy uh, x-ray at three hours, then out the door mm -hmm. after the three-hour one looks good. Um, yeah. and, and that's, people just do things differently, and and I can't say that. It, one of the criticisms it, in that way is it's always think about how many of those three-hour films where we're finding a delayed pneumothorax, which does happen. The delayed pneumothorax does happen 
but it's how many of those are we intervening on? Like when you have an asymptomatic patient who's satting well, those are few and far. And one of the things that um, we keep going back to, uh, some of my younger partners, we, we routinely say, you know, we should be treating the patient, not the pictures, but we are also trying to standardize a practice across like a wide breadth of, of practitioners. And so we're just trying to find something that works for everybody's practice. And that, that's uh, the challenge for us. I, I think that, that practice sounds great. I mean, there, there are extremes um, to both sides where people are keeping patients four or five hours afterwards. And there are some other extremes where people are not getting a chest x-ray and just watching uh, patients for a short period of time and sending them out the door. And I think there's arguments to be made both ways. And, um, you know, I think this is going to be evolving over years. And, and uh, I have the feeling that my gut sense is that we'll get, <clears throat> we'll follow exactly what you're saying. And that as the data is coming out, that longer follow-ups and more imaging is probably not adding that much. And my guess is we're going to be doing less over time. But uh, as I said, I think this is an evolving concept and, and, uh, I don't think that any, there, there's no standard that, uh, that that's out there that, that we have to meet at this point. Sure. Agreed. There is one other topic that I think we should touch on, and that is kind of the role of percutaneous lung biopsies versus the bronchoscopically electromagnetic navigated biopsy. And, uh, you know, I think there's not a ton of literature comparing the two techniques, but uh, they are somewhat competitive. And I've noticed that many more patients in our center are getting ENB first before the patients are sent to us. And I think uh, if you look at the literature, the diagnostic yield rate for an ENB biopsy is, you know, 75% maybe. Um, there's some different numbers out there in the literature, but I think it's around that. And when you ask people, pulmonologists especially, uh, why they're going first to ENB versus percutaneous biopsy, I think you'll get a variety of answers. One is that for some reason, which I don't really understand, ENB is considered non-invasive, whereas what we do is considered invasive. And I, I find that difficult to reconcile in my own mind because putting someone under essentially general anesthesia and putting a scope all the way down their trachea and into their bronchi and out to the periphery of the lung, that seems pretty invasive to me. <laughs> <laughs> compared compared to what we do, I mean, we're, right. we're I mean, to me, it, it's even a little bit controversial, the use of, of conscious sedation. I mean, there are many practices that don't use conscious sedation at all, and I think do a great job. I would say that virtually every patient that we do, that we can get adequate local anesthesia, doesn't even really feel what, what we do to them. And the conscious sedation is more for them to hold still and to be less anxious during, during the procedure. So, and, and maybe to help control coughing. That I don't, I don't really understand that argument uh, that well. The second is that I've seen in the literature several times where it's been referred to that the highly invasive percutaneous lung biopsies have a very high pneumothorax rate, and therefore uh, we should be doing ENB first because the pneumothorax rate is lower. And uh, I think in, in this paper, we address that a little bit Annie Slavor, who's again, the primary author on this paper, did a bit of a literature dive. And it turns out that even though that is true to a point, that the pneumothorax rate is generally greater in percutaneous series, the intervention rate is no different. So in our series, for example, as we noted earlier, we only put chest tubes in in about 2% of patients. 
Whereas in a lot of the ENB series, they're putting in chest tubes up to 4% of the time. So I don't really get that argument either. Now, there are areas where ENB does a better job than we do and vice versa. You know, a very sure. small peripheral nodule is probably our area and central, you know, airway-based uh, lesions are probably ENB areas. But there is this large area of overlap that I think we need to study and try to understand better which technique is better for, for one versus the other. Because I think in the absence of data, we're going to find ourselves um, fighting a turf battle that is going to be um, patient access based. You know, who sees the patient first and what the referral patterns are at a particular institution rather than evidence based. And so I guess I would urge um, the listeners out there, if you have a practice where you can study this topic to go ahead and do it. Um, it's, it's something that uh, I think we're going to be studying sometime in the future too, and, uh, and try to really get this a little bit more standardized so that this doesn't become a, I mean, it becomes a patient distribution issue rather than a, a fight between specialty issues, because I, I, I really don't think we should, we should try to get into that personally. I agree. I mean, I think the evidence-based approach is the evidence-based patient-centric approach. It's, it's hard to argue against that. I will say um, one of the other arguments I've heard for ENB is um, when they're doing the nodule biopsy, a lot of times our um, interventional pulmonology guys will, they say that we can, you know, sample the lymph nodes at the same time. And so they'll make a, an argument for lymph node staging. And one of the other things that they're, they're very upfront about is that you know, this is, this is what they're trained to do. And they think these procedures are fun. And so, um, we, we have a healthy competition, um, with us and the interventional pulmonologists. But I will say that as of late in the last couple of years, I feel like we've been getting the nod more and more as their samples are coming back less and less adequate for genetics and molecular testing. Yes. But I agree that I, I think that as Hopefully some people will settle the answer in terms of deciding which is best for that area of overlap, those mid-range lesions where I think both teams, interventional pulmon, interventional radiology are doing a good job. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think an evidence-based approach is going to be better and maybe it's just because I'm getting older, but I kind of, the intensity of turf battles seems to be going down. Um, I think I'm fortunate practicing at University of Wisconsin where, I mean, we have a very collegial medical staff and uh, we just don't have those fight to the death kind of uh, turf issues here. And I'm not sure if that's a reflection of what's happening nationwide and worldwide, but I think maybe it's, it's more a reflection of just everybody being really busy and plenty of work for people to do. But I, I have to give a nod to our, um, our interventional pulmonology group, Scott Ferguson leads that and uh, they are great collaborators, and uh, I think they would be open to an evidence-based approach. Uh, we just need to to get that evidence out there, which which is not really available um, at the t last time we we looked at all the literature. Sure, which was September of 2021 um, when the paper <laughs> came out. <laughs> I'll just say a few months ago, Annie did a pretty deep yeah. dive into the into the literature. <laughs> For the, for yeah. those people that are listening and there's been some paper published last month, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> sure. Right. We're all busy. <laughs> yep. All right, guys, that concludes part one of the lung biopsies podcast. Stay tuned for part two.